This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Speakers start speaking, they always say, thank you for coming. Um, and I'm sure they mean it, but this morning I really mean it because five minutes ago no one was here and I began to look at the schedule wondering what seminar I would go to. Um, I, this seminar is competing this morning with some very popular, uh, I'm sure there are signs outside some rooms saying completely full, but there are very popular seminars this morning elsewhere. Uh, but if no one had come, I would still be giving the presentation to an empty room because the primary audience for this uh, series is on Audioverse. There are 130 seminars, and you get to go to six of them. And so uh, the idea is that people will choose what they want to listen to and access it primarily on Audioverse. So, uh, but it's so much better to be giving a presentation with people in the room. So again, thank you for coming. <laughs> uh, my name's Scott Christensen, and they've told me downstairs that I need to push my book, which I, I'm not a salesman, so I'm not really good at this. But this, um, I, I called the Adventist Book Center here in Florida. I knew they would be in the, in the display area, in the, in the ballroom, and I knew that they would have books for sale. And I said, look, I'll be there and I'll be speaking, and could you get a few of my books because people might want them. And, um, and they got 400 of them, and they sold just a few. Of, I only expected them to sell a few. And they said, push the books. We don't want to take all these back. But the good news is, if you're interested in the seminar and if you want a lot more information, there's a lot more information in the book, um, they've got a really good price on it, $9 here. And no, normally it's 12 So they really don't want to carry them all back. But 400, I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, we're going to be talking about some very interesting things this morning, which I hope are a significant blessing to you in terms of what is going on in the world, the prophecy that we can see being fulfilled right now, and our role and responsibility in light of the fulfillment of prophecy. Let's begin this seminar with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for the privilege of being here this morning. Thank you so much for being surrounded by people that are on fire for you. Lord, I ask that you would uh, reveal your presence this morning, that you would settle your spirit on each and every one in this room, not just in this room, Lord, but in the other amazing seminars that are going on, the wealth of information that is, is being presented. Please, Lord, bless the speakers and bless those who are listening, that you may be glorified and that your kingdom may expand. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, let me get my clicker here. I'm going to go through, this is actually a pretty full seminar. Uh, it's, it's going to take almost all the time allocated. Uh, and yet, I need to go through some background for those. How many of you have been to previous seminars? Okay, oh. well, okay, that's about half. Um, I'm, for those of you, you can tune out, for those of you who have been here before. For those of you who haven't been here, just to throw you in to the context of the uh, uh, 
uh, proceedings, throw you in without the context of the preceding seminars, you might not get it. So let me just go through this quickly if I can. Everything on earth, I think you will agree, everything on earth happens in the context of the great controversy. Um, 99.9999999% of the world has no feel at all for the fact that there is this raging war between Christ and Satan, and we are both the foot soldiers and the stakes that are uh, up for grabs in the war. Actually, not up for grabs since the cross, but prior to that, up for grabs. And even among Christians and even among Adventists, there is not a daily sense that we are involved in this raging war. Interestingly enough, if you go back to, um, well, you go back to the Civil War, and if you go back to the First World War, those who were asleep on duty were shot. And it is a signal of the character of our Redeemer that we are asleep and yet are constantly offered pardon, and not only pardon, but astonishing reward. And yet, this thing's going on all around us, if you, were to, if you were to identify anything in the world that is not uh, affected by the great controversy, I challenge you to come up with anything. Anything in our economy, anything in our industry, anything in our society, but what this seminar is about is anything in our natural world. If you were to say to me, the amount of solar radiation that comes to the earth from the sun is not affected by the great controversy, I would not have a counter argument to offer but I challenge you to come up with anything else that is not affected by the great controversy, including in the natural world. This idea that sin has effect on the physical world is novel. What you're hearing today is new. It is not discussed in the Christian world. It's certainly not discussed in the Adventist world outside of this seminar and the other media that, that I've um, uh, been working in. And yet, once you start looking, there is abundant proof in Scripture and there is abundant proof, superabundant proof in spirit of prophecy that sin affects the natural world. We've never looked at it like this, maybe because we're asleep, okay, but more than that, because prior to this, well, this is the first generation where we can see and measure the changing of the earth in less than a human lifetime where we can talk to grandparents and they're saying, this is so different, this has never happened before, something weird's going on. And from recognizing that there's things going on to connecting that to the great controversy, that's taken a while, but we're doing it. So sin has, a, we're gonna be talking about sin and its profound effect on the physical world. We're going to talk about how instability in the physical world affects society. It causes disasters, disease, and instability in our society. We're going to follow that chain through. Instability in man's society causes conflict, which again results in disease and pestilence and famine. We've got this downward self-reinforcing spiral. So we've got sin, we've got changes in our natural world, and in previous sessions I've gone into some significant depth in this. And then we've got changes in man's society resulting in conflict, disease, famine, including interestingly enough, resulting in earthquakes, and I'll cover that in the next session. 
Uh, so we've got, I just went through that. We've got all of these things. We can, we can connect the dots from sin all the way down to what's happening in the natural world. Fulfillment of prophecy. We're seeing fulfillment of prophecy. Now you say, how is that? Well, we'll take a look at it. Conflict. In fact, I think I need to jump ahead. Conflict, disease. Uh, here we are, Matthew 24, 6 through 8. This is Christ speaking to his disciples. Jesus himself saying, here's what happens just before I come. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. This is the first generation, and those of you who have been here before, you heard me say this like five times now. This is the first generation that can chart and graph the fulfillment of prophecy. Not just, I think I see something, but be able to chart it and graph it, and not only that, but say, I think this is where the problems are coming next because of the trends and because of the patterns. In this case, the problem coming next would be Central Africa. Okay, so during creation week, these were the systems that were created. They're bookended by physics and God's natural laws and bookended by human civilization and health. All of these systems were created in uh, the creation week, Genesis 1, but it's those five systems in the middle that I've been concentrating on and looking at the uh, astonishing decay and decline, accelerating decay and decline in these natural systems and how they fit into prophecy. Uh, the fact that these natural systems are decaying and decline, declining and the fact they're having an impact on society hasn't affected you much at all, assuming that you are from North America or from Europe. And yet, there's 3.5 billion people in the world that make $2 a day or less, 1 billion that make less than a dollar a day. These people are affected profoundly and for the last five years have been squeezed, taking their kids out of school, reducing the amount of food that they eat, reducing the amount of money that they spend at every opportunity because of the changes in the world and because of the tremendous spikes in food prices. There are billions of people, and they're people that are foregoing medical care that could hardly afford it in the first place. The world is entering a time of trouble. And if there's anything else that happens, these people that have been squeezed have no plan B. This is not your life, but it's the life of billions of people that Christ died for and it, their lives will get much, much, much worse, as we'll look at, and it will be harder and harder and harder to reach them with the message. Are we working now, or are we cruising along? This probably isn't the audience to speak to in that tone, or in that, with that message. Normally, I'm speaking in front of Adventist groups where, hey, it's a Laodicean church, we're asleep, or I'm speaking in front of secular groups who connect with this message very well, surprisingly. Uh, but you guys, this is a little bit like preaching to the choir. Anyway, so the logic chain, we went from complete, from perfection to complete dysfunction. What happened? Well, here's the logic chain. Satan is in rebellion. Rebellion is sin. Sin is separation from God. Separation from God is death. Everything on earth that God created is subject to death. 
even these massive systems that God created, when, you, when sin entered the world and Satan gained dominion, creation was separated from its creator, and sin is the result. And when every part of a system is dying, the system itself is dying. So you've all played with tops. You know how it works. You spin it. It's, if you've done it right, which, which is hard for me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not very good at it. But if you do it right, it's just like it glides there on that table or that floor or whatever surface, you know, and it's beautiful. But you know how it ends. It ends with it beginning to wobble and then really wobbling and then crashing. And right now, the top has started wobbling and is wobbling a bit more, and you will see it. You know how the story ends, more and more and more. Will we see it crash? No, unless those days were shortened, no flesh should survive. We won't see it crash. I spent, in session two, I spent a great deal of time talking about the food production system, one of the systems that was created during creation week, and I did that for a reason. All around the earth, during the age of the industrial agriculture, we have destroyed our soil. We've turned it into dirt. We've loaded it down with uh, salts that are left over from fertilizers. We've killed the microorganisms and the fungi that had a symbiotic relationship with the plants and helped everything grow. We've made it so that we've produced a huge amount of food, but it's like milking a cow 24 hours a day. That, that story doesn't end out well for the cow or the people that are doing the milking. We've turned our soil into dirt. We've made it so that we have to put chemicals in to get anything out. And that story, as we will see shortly, is not going to end well. We've got seven billion people to feed. And this is a food price chart that goes from 1990. On the web, you can find it back to 1960. We hit pretty much an all-time low. Food was really, really cheap in 2002. So was oil. The price chart for oil can be almost directly laid over this because we use six calories of oil to put one calorie of food on our plates. Oil is a huge part of our food production system in industrial agriculture. So this is a food chart, but it's also an oil price chart. It can be used as a proxy for one. Things were going well in 2002. They were going extraordinary poorly in 2007, 2008. We got this huge price spike, another little one here, a third one here. Why does that matter? How does that get into the Bible? Why do you care? Because of this. This is the same food price spike, the same chart, but a, a condensed. Here's 2008, this large, massive food price spike. Uh, massive, truly massive. Here, second little one. Here, the third large one. These lines that go up and down, Burundi, here. This is a national rebellion. This is a war. This is a conflict. This is the number of deaths. And you can see that there's a perfect correlation between food price spikes and societal instability. Over here, uh, Syria, with 900 deaths, you can tell that this is an old chart. That's over 100,000 now. In fact, in Syria, uh, which has turned into a regional war with the US and Israel and more or less Turkey on one side, sometimes the Europeans, and with Iraq, Iran, Syria, and kind of sort of Russia on the other side, um, you've got millions of refugees out of Syria. You've got disease ravaging the country. You've got starvation ravaging the country. You have 
prophecy being fulfilled in front of your eyes in Syria, and to a greater degree you have it being fulfilled around the Middle East. But what happened in Syria is that they had this huge drought back that started in 2006, the longest and severest drought in the written history of the Fertile Crescent, which is a lot of written history. And that drought continued year after year after year with people getting increasingly desperate and having to sell everything they had. We're talking small farmers with just a few, few flocks and herds and modest little farms where they had to buy their seed. They finally got so desperate, sold everything they had, killed off all their flocks, which were starving anyway, got to the point here where they got so desperate that even though they had this tremendously despotic government, some of the youth in the country, people your age, started scrawling slogans on brick walls, and those same people were lined up in front of those same walls, and they were shot, and thus started the Syrian war. The entire Arab Spring, maybe people were sick and tired of their despotic government, but the entire Arab Spring was triggered by food price rises. Conflict, wars and rumors of wars, but where but is it over? Is it, is it all done? No. This is the same chart put out by the same organization. I failed to tell you that they're, uh, the organization that made that last chart and made this chart, they're called NEXI, New England, uh, Northeast, no, New England uh, Complex Systems Institute. It's a cooperation be between Harvard and MIT. Uh, this is the trend that they say food prices are on. That trend, if you understand the implications, should scare you to death in terms of impact on the world. I disagree with them. This is the trend that I think we're on, this clumsy little line that I put in. This more modest line scares me to death. The world, through the effect of sin, the actual physical world that we take for granted outside these walls is falling apart. And this top is getting more and more unstable as time goes on. And through this line, you can see uh, significant instability coming. If you take a look at regions that are already having some conflict and regions that are where the, the sparks are there and the fire is about to really start, Central Africa would be next. Okay, so that gets us, that was, for those of you who've seen more than one session, that was really fast because we've gone into significant detail ahead of this. But all we've done in the previous sessions is cover this pyramid up here, global system decline, the sin affecting the natural world. This seminar is about how man, uh, the plans of man, are so terribly toxic. It is very ironic that sinful man through the ages, whenever he comes up with this grand scheme, like the Tower of Babel uh, or, um, or the Federal Reserve <laughs> or, you know, or the Green Revolution, for those of you who were in previous uh, seminars, man comes up with these plans and they really backfire on us. We're going to be looking at resource depletion and complex society collapse. In one seminar, we're gonna be looking at the two remaining pyramids. We spent the bulk of our time on the natural world, but there, because there is so much interplay between the society of man and the plans of man and the natural world, these things all fit together. So we're gonna to be talking about the systems of man. 
the decline of global man-made systems, oil and money. We're going to talk about resource shortages, which are very, very real. We're going to be talking about complex societies, which is a little bit about talking to fish about water. We are so immersed in our complex society that we don't recognize it. It's there. It's like, it's like the air. It's, it's there. We don't, it's, you, unless you're really thinking about it, you don't recognize it. But we're going to talk about complex societies, and we're going to talk about the mercy of God. We're going to talk about how complex societies collapse, the society that you're living in, and we're going to relate that to the mercy of God. Because, and we're going to relate the mercy of God to the plagues on Egypt. People in Egypt had their chance in the, in the, essentially the destruction of Egypt to recognize God. They lost their distractions. All of their gods were not just destroyed, they were humiliated in front of them. They had their chance in mercy. In the destruction in the unraveling of our society and the unraveling of our economy, uh, people will have their quiet moment to reflect. Our society, our modern society, will lose its distractions. So this is what we're going to be covering. Starting off with oil and money. We are gods with a lowercase g. We can change the world. We can terraform the earth. China's doing this significantly. They're taking a place, a piece of land the size of uh, an American state. Okay, granted, a small one, Vermont, New Hampshire. But they're taking a piece of land that uh, is called the Los Plateau, have taken it. They've already done this. They've created valleys where there weren't valleys. They've created mountains where there weren't mountains. They took an area that was... Um, uh, had been dramatically overgrazed for hundreds of years, had, been, had seen desertification. And the reason that this area of land, which was hundreds of miles from Beijing, from the central government, the reason this piece of land got the attention of the Chinese government is because there are massive windstorms up by the Gobi Desert which lift up sand and carry it hundreds of miles and then deposit it on Beijing. And this is, how you get the, uh, <laughs> this is how you get the attention of the Chinese government. You deposit millions of tons of sand on the streets of the capital city. And so this kept happening, and the guys in Beijing said, all right, you know what, this is it. We've we, we got to stop this sand thing. So they terraformed the earth. This huge fleet of earth-moving machines changed the topography of an entire area the size of a state. They planted millions and millions of trees and bushes and everything else, and it worked. It's not just that one instance. Terraforming is going on in Africa. Terraforming is going on here. Look around you. These streets, these hotels, the, the way the water drains. Man has changed the surface of the earth wherever he has populated it, and in some places where he hasn't really populated it, such as the Los Plateau in China. We have more power than we've ever had. And we've used that power to glorify God, right? No, that was just a test. This is Victoria Peak in Hong Kong, a peak that I've climbed many times, well, climbed, walked this little trail that they have. It's always been hot and sweaty, and I have no doubt that on the night this picture was taken that this was hot and sweaty, some poor photographer. But this is Hong Kong, mammonist ground zero, all about money, all, about the time, all the time, period, and not to pick on Hong Kong because other cities aren't that dramatically different, but 
Hong Kong is probably the farthest out on the scale. We have built our complex societies and we have pushed God aside. We have used our power to build societies to do pretty much whatever we can imagine. We've used that to insulate ourselves from God. This insulation will be stripped away. So we've used our oil-derived power to pursue the desires of our heart. I like Ferraris better than Lamborghinis, but that's just me. <laughs> but our desires generally don't, aren't charitable desires. Our desires aren't generally as, I'm speaking to the choir here, but, but as, a, as a church as a whole and as a Christianity as a whole, and certainly the world as a whole, our desires are not usually focused on executing the will of the Lord as our highest priority. So this oil, if it has given man so much power, what's its status? Well, this is, called, this is something called the Hubbard Curve. It was developed by a guy named King Hubbard. Yes, that's his name, King Hubbard. And he was an oil field geologist, worked in the 30s and 40s. And he figured out the production curve for a single oil well. And they go like this, up and then down. And usually, uh, when it's on its way down, yeah, they're, they're having to work harder and harder to get that oil out. Usually, they don't pump past, oh, right about there. There's oil down there, but it's so hard to get. So he figured that out for a single oil well. If this hadn't been done previously, and it was a big deal for the oil companies because uh, they knew how much to invest in that well. They, you know, are we going to put a pipeline? Or are we going to just truck the oil out? What are we going to do? Should we drill more? They were able to make a lot of business decisions based on his pioneering work. He went from there to figuring out the production curve for a, an oil field. Uh, and the production curve looked pretty much the same, uh, so the scale was just different. Uh, so that was extremely useful for the oil companies. And then he died, and his intellectual heirs figured out the production curve for, or at least the theory, for global oil, the amount of oil that's available globally. And we're right about, well, actually, we're right about here according to that theory. We're very close to the peak. Now, the peak has been um, significantly upset by the discovery of the tar sands up in Canada and by the discovery of uh, tech new technologies such as fracking. And yet, when you take a look at the discoveries, so you see the past discovery of oil here. Let's see if my, yeah, past discovery of oil here. And you've got kind of a stair step. And this chart goes to 2008. I apologize, it's not more updated. It's the best I could find. But if we included fracking, we'd have another stair step down. It's actually not that different in terms of global oil. Uh, now, this is a five-year oil price chart. And if you look at this, you probably remember very well paying $4 and whatever, almost $5 for gas back in 2008. And then you may remember that that whole thing went away and oil price crashed. But let me ask you this. What year had the highest ever year-round average price for oil? 72. 72? 
That's, you have a very good historical memory, but it's not actually correct. Um, but, that's, but, it's, but it's close. It's in the top five. No, you're, it's good. I remember, oh, I won't go into my memories. We don't have time for that, but, but it's a real good memory. <laughs> I remember riding my bicycle and watching the people in line back in 72. Um, so where is it? It's on this chart. Which year was it? It's not 2009, right? Can we eliminate 2009? It's not 2010. Is it 2008? Eh, no, it's not because of the low here. 2012 is exactly right. It's 2012, uh, which is only 13 months away from where we are now. Right behind 2012 is 2013. We have sustained high oil prices, which means we have sustained high food prices. And even though we have these new technologies, um, the, you know, we're, even though we're getting more oil from some places, and even though we've been through this tremendous, this great recession, the price of oil is at, at world record high in terms of year-round average. This continues to be a resource which is dramatically pressured. And when you take a look at these growing economies that are competing with the US and everyone else and China for oil, and when you take a look at what's going on in the natural world that threatens the delivery of oil, you begin to be concerned about the fact that our society, I don't know if I really want to call it our society, the society of the world, the society of man in the world, has to have this stuff. With what's going on in the world becoming increasingly and increasingly unstable, the society that we assume will function well is increasingly threatened. And of course, the speaker didn't turn off his phone. Wow. Um, and I'll bet you I even know who that is. I apologize. So there we go. Society. <laughs> the world that we live in, the world that we assume will continue to function while we witness, is becoming more and more unstable through the impact of sin, because the very world that our society is built on is crumbling through the effect of sin. And yet, man has designed something that without sin in the world, we never would have designed. The society that man has built is not the society that God ordained and envisioned when he gave his instructions in Genesis chapter 1. Therefore, it is completely unstable. It is, complete, it is doomed to failure because of sin. So we've got nations competing for oil, and I don't just mean, you know, shouldering each other. They're using guns. Uh, the primary reason we went to Iraq was for its oil, because the targets there were better. I realize I'm, I'm wandering into politics, and I, I detest politics, have no respect for it, do not get into it in my presentations, but if you take a look at historical records, the primary reason we went into Iraq was for the oil. We are, in the United States, we are very good warriors. Maybe not the best reason for pride, but we're very good warriors. There are, however, better businessmen 
Who has the oil now? Who has outmaneuvered us and signed the contracts for Iraq's oil after we spent trillions? China, absolutely. This is an international audience. I shouldn't say we. When I say we, I mean the US. But nations are competing for oil. And there's the thing about competition. Nations are very diplomatic, very friendly, you know, very accommodating until their interests are threatened. And when you see resource shortages, the gloves come off and the guns are picked up. Do you know what this is? Sorry? Oil sands. Oil sands, that's a good guess. Anyone else? It's a desert environment, and if you knew it's a desert environment, that would tell you it's not oil sands. But it's a good guess. Coal, anyone go for coal? No, smart people, that's not coal. This is uh, phosphate rock being mined in Africa. It, uh, Tanzania is one of the few countries that produces phosphate rock. Phosphate rock is dirt. You know, it's just, it's just stuff. And uh, it's, it's ugly and it's boring. Uh, and there's an 18-year supply left in the, United, in, the, in the world. China is one of the countries that has phosphate rock in, a, in commercial amounts, significant amounts. One of the few countries that exports it. They've stopped exporting it because, uh, because they're, now they're buying phosphate rock from the rest of the world. And China, they're very good planners. They look ahead. Here's the thing. In the Industrial Revolution, we started using all of these chemicals and fertilizers all over the, not the Industrial, in the Agricultural Revolution, we started using, we started really globalizing uh, agricultural, industrial agriculture. We made it so that we couldn't use soil because we only had dirt and we had to put chemicals in. This is a chemical that we have to put in. Plants absolutely require it. Asking a plant to do without phosphorus is like asking us to do without oxygen. It used to be that the soil was full of microorganisms and full of fungus that scavenged phosphorus and, and, and had a, the fungus had a symbiotic relationship with the plants and delivered small amounts of phosphorus exactly where it was needed. Now we have to saturate that soil with phosphorus. We can't grow food for seven billion people without phosphorus. We have an 18 year supply left. Here's what happens with and without phosphorus. In my seminars, I go through a dozen nightmare scenarios, some as a result of our own failure in planning, human society, sinful society, some as a result of sin in the natural world. Any one of these dozen nightmare scenarios should have the total focus of the world and certainly should have the total focus of Christians going, okay, the clock's ticking, you know what? We're hitting a wall, we need to be about our Father's business. This is just one. This is just one. In the previous seminar, I covered the fact that our oceans are collapsing and there's one billion people who will have to go to land-based food in the next 20 years because our ocean species, commercial species, will be completely depleted, down to zero. A billion people, all right, I'll get off my soapbox. So the, uh, we've gotta have phosphate rock We've got to have metals and minerals and rare earths. 
got to have energy supplies. I worked as a uh, missionary, uh, the director of ADRA in Mongolia. Went there in 1994. Really, really cold country. <laughs> Maine, when I, when I returned to the U.S., we lived in Maine. It's like, oh, the banana belt, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's 19 degrees below zero in Maine this morning at my house, and that's just a calm, warm winter day in Mongolia. So here's this empty country with all these with just a few people scattered in it, and um, they, they, they knew they had no resources in Mongolia. They knew they had no natural resources because the Russians who dominated Mongolia, in fact, Mongolia would have been part of Russia, but Russia wanted another UN vote. Uh, and so they didn't, they, they kept them separate under Stalin. But Russia dominated that country completely, ruled it, essentially, uh, for 72 years. And Russia had done these complete surveys of Mongolia. The Mongolians knew that. The Russians had sent over very qualified geologists. They'd given them excellent e equipment. They'd given them excellent materials. They'd given them an, an abundance of supplies. They gave them guides. They gave them all the fuel they needed. They gave them all the food they needed. They gave them all the vodka they wanted. And these geologists went out in the countryside. They, they didn't really use the guides. They didn't really use the trucks. They didn't really use the uh, maps. They used some of the food, they used all of the vodka. Then they came back and said, there's nothing out there, man, do I have a headache. After the Soviet Union fell and uh, the rest of the world was allowed into this country which had once been hermetically sealed, the Canadians did what the Russians did. They, gave, they brought in really qualified cold area geologists and they gave them the, the trucks and the maps, and the, but they didn't give them the vodka. I had to come back into the capital city on the weekend and make a ruckus so that I couldn't sleep because of the hotel next door. But anyway, the Canadians found tremendous amounts of uranium, the world's largest copper supply, one of the world's largest iron supplies, massive coal supplies, some oil, a lot of gold, some silver. And the Mongolians are now really, really, really regretting it. The Mongolians and China have had a very poor relationship for a long time, which is evidenced by the Great Wall. The Great Wall, by the way, was meant to keep out, not the Mongolians, but the Mongolians' horses. It was built to keep out the, the raiding bands uh, that surrounded the time of Genghis Khan, uh, because Mongolians without their horses were not a threat. But they've had this poor relationship, and Mongolia took over China, and then China returned the favor, and. Uh, 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 annexed Mongolia for a time. And uh, after the Mongolians found all of this mineral wealth, something changed. The Chinese did not want the Mongolians to come into China prior to the finding the wealth. Then all of a sudden, Mongolians not only could get into China, but they didn't need a visa. They didn't even need a passport. And the Mongolians said to the Chinese, why, why? Do you no longer require a visa? And they said, well, you've always been part of us. Come on in. And Mongolia, with their 3,000-man army, <laughs> with China next door, they're just quaking in their boots because for China, it would be a very simple thing to take that country over. And all over the world, nations are looking abroad. We don't have enough farmland. Our farmland's going away, and you haven't been using yours responsibly. Obviously, if you're not responsible, you're going to lose it. All around the world, we're seeing the increased likelihood of uh, conflict as these critical resources uh, limits begin to be hit. 
Plenty of stuff, peace. Critical supplies, war. And that's the era that we're entering. That's the era in which you will live and operate with your ministry. Dramatically increased difficulty in reaching people immediately ahead. Today is the easiest day to witness, period. Yesterday was easier, tomorrow's harder. That's the world you live in. Uh, Ellen White says that we will see famine and we will see disease uh, on many area, in many areas, and, but some of it will be caused by war or conflict. Because, and you're seeing this in Syria right now. You're seeing prophecy fulfilled in Syria right now. When you have war, you can't have normal agriculture. You cannot have normal health system delivery. And we're seeing dramatic disease, uh, not, just, not just in Syria, certainly, but we're seeing, we're seeing it. Okay, that ends resource, uh, uh, the, the short amount of time that I'm going to spend on resource shortages. Our financial system, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm afraid I'm not going on to good news, folks, um, but our financial system, our global financial system is built directly on our natural world. Our economic system functions because the natural world functions. If the natural world doesn't function, we don't have a basis for our industrial world. We don't have a basis for the financial world, which is built on our industrial world. Eventually, everything gets back to this world that God created. Even though we're in this nice air-conditioned building, uh, well, heated today, and uh, air-conditioned yesterday, and, you know, and even though all that stuff's outside, and we feel in our complex society, especially in North America, that we are so separate, you know, so separate from what's out there, but we're not. And the effect of sin absolutely affects our world, including our global financial system. So as we get more unstable in the world, our financial systems become more unstable. Can anyone name a country that is financially stable today? China. China always comes. You're very brave. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and, uh, and, and I hesitate now to take you down <laughs> because you're generous to speak up. But having worked and lived in China, China uh, is a, uh, most of China's smoke and mirrors. China's financial system is extremely unhealthy. Yes, they're the leading producer of stuff in the world. Uh, they're, they're, they've, they've done an amazing, you know, from when I started traveling there in 93, they've, they've, it's been just absolutely astonishing what they've done. But um, their financial system is fundamentally corrupt, and it's smoke and mirrors, more so than our Drexel Burnham meltdown back in 2007. And they're, they're, an act, they're, they're, they're a catastrophe waiting to happen. Their, their turn will come. Is there another nomination for a financially stable country? Yes. Ah, Swiss, I, I give this talk a lot, and Switzerland always comes up. And thank you. Thank you for that. But I would argue that a country whose economy was built on handling other people's money, which is unsound, is not itself unsound. It's not itself sound. I mean, if, if their business is finance, and it mostly is, and everyone else's money is, is fake money, is funny money, how can their economy be? That would be my counter-argument. Whether or not you accept it, I don't know. Is there another nomination? Norway. Norway. Norway, for a while, was a petroleum state. And petroleum states are doing relatively well, since they can turn brown liquid into cash, or gold, or whatever they want. 
Uh, but Norway's, the North Sea oil reserves have dramatically declined and Norway's costs, basically they're a welfare state. I'm Norwegian, you know, I mean, hey, I, and I'd rather live there than here on most days. But Norway, I would not say, uh, is financially sound because their high spending and their tailing off of oil revenues is really catching up with them. Is there another? I heard two. I heard Australia and Canada. Um, very few Australians that you talk to will agree with you, uh, <laughs> if that's indicative. Uh, um, and they are, this, this, this pattern of deficit spending that we love so much in the, in the U.S. Uh, uh, is catching up with them. I heard Canada, and probably, actually. The Canadian dollar has gone from 60 U.S. cents to 100 U.S. cents. Yes? Are you? Yeah. Well, when it comes to when it comes to fracking and when it comes to tar sands, I mean, what's happening in Alberta? Alberta really is shouldering the rest of Canada right now. Yeah, you got tired of. Yep. That'll that'll supercharge. We won't get into how dirty that oil is. We won't do that. But but you you did get sick and tired of waiting for the U.S. and you're pumping it to the Pacific and you're on you're you're doing it yourselves now. I've been keeping a close. I used to work for a Canadian company. I've been keeping a close eye. But I would uh, because Canada is a has vast reserves and is a petroleum-based economy. While they're certainly not perfect, uh, as our Canadian friends will will acknowledge, they're probably one of the few strong uh, economies today. But the major economies, EU countries, forget it. China, no way. Japan, absolutely not. Still stalled. The US, huh. no. And here's the thing. These financial geniuses uh, long ago, uh, go, even going back to Bretton Woods, um, said, OK, if we link arms, if the countries link arms together, then we won't fall. You know, I mean, one country falls and we can support them and, and we'll have financial stability instead of a domino effect and it'll be great. And, and they were right. If one country fell, the other countries in the world could, could, you know, hold them up and support them. But if two countries fell, it turned out that everyone fell. It didn't take, you know, everyone's got their arms joined together, and when there's enough weight, everyone gets pulled down and they all fall down. We almost saw it with the EU. We went through extraordinary lengths to avoid a global collapse. We, in fact, uh, increased the U.S. debt, government debt, by 50% in the last five years, wild spending, in order to try and, and not turn a recession into a global depression. As a result of this, there's no extra money to pay for adaptation. Uh, there's, you know, as the climate, 
not the climate, but as all of the systems that God created become increasingly unstable, the climate is the most measured and the most talked about and the most argued about, so I actually kind of avoid that topic um, so we don't get political. But as the world grows increasingly unstable through the effects of sin, as the great controversy is seen in our natural world, the effects of Satan's government are seen in our natural world. It, society will become more and more stressed, and we don't have the reserves anywhere to deal with that. Well, you know, what can we do? And, and what resources will we use to adapt so that we can continue to be insulated from God, so that we can, can continue our society? I want to turn from, I didn't spend long on finances, I'm just touching on these other systems, uh, man-made systems, and how they relate to natural systems. So I'm not going into significant depth on any of these. Complex society, I want to cover complex society. Complex societies are fragile. Man builds complex societies. A complex society, uh, well, yeah, how can I explain this? Okay. Prepare to raise your hand. You are not a member of a complex society if you produce all of your own food, you produce all of your own fiber for your housing, for your uh, clothing, for, every, for, for shoes, for everything else. You buy no food from anyone else. You buy no material from anyone else. You do not trade with anyone else. You are entirely self-sufficient in medicine, education, transportation. You do not interact with the broader world. Raise your hand. All right, if you didn't raise your hand, you're part of a complex society. What people do in complex societies is they specialize. And except for a very few people in the highlands of Papua New Guinea and in the deepest jungle, what's left, what little is left of it, in Africa, everyone is part of a complex society. For the first time in known history, because we don't know what happened before the flood, for the first time in known history, we have a global complex society. And here's the thing, complex societies always collapse, always. Every known complex society has collapsed. And they go through this definite uh, growth uh, arc. Start out, they get increasingly complex so that more and more people specialize and you get more and more professions that are, that are reliant on technology and you get this thing building up that requires more and more technology and you have larger and larger problems which require more and more expensive solutions and it gets to the point where we're spending a tremendous amount of our societal resources on huge problems and the tax, the, the financial burden is so great that, uh, or, the, or the resources that are critical run out and the whole thing just kind of collapses. And you go through this definite period, growth, maturation, pre-collapse, collapse. Now this pre-collapse period is one that we're concerned about today because when a society is in pre-collapse, when a complex society is in pre-collapse, it always does a couple things. It always tries as hard as it can to find solutions to these enormous problems, problems including those that we've been talking about, and it always fails. Eventually, sometimes it can keep going for, for decades, but it always fails eventually to solve the escalating problems, and therefore it always takes as a last resort the easy way out. It tries to get 
the resources it needs, it tries to get the stuff it needs, tries to get the money it needs through war. Every complex society collapses, and before they collapse, they go to war, and we're right here. In the growth, maturation, and pre-collapse phase, we're right here in pre-collapse on a global basis. And we can see the end to our resources, and we can see them coming, and that's the world you live in. More importantly, that's the world you're trying to witness in. Yesterday was a really good day to put a lot of your resources, a lot of your personal energy, your own reputation into witnessing. Today's not as good. Tomorrow's going to be worse and more difficult. That's the reality that you and I live in. Technology is our friend, right? Well, technology is what every complex society uses. The best example would be the Romans. Oh, come on, they had these spears, you know? I mean, they were, that's not technology. Oh, yes, it is technology. Oh, yes, it is technology. They had shields that were a little better. They had spears that were a little longer. They had bows that shot a little bit further. And the Roman Empire was built on technology. You might laugh at it today while you're holding your iPhone. Well, actually, they, my son tells me iPhones are for old people, and you've got to have a no, whatever, whatever phone he has. But anyway, whatever smarter and more intelligent and cooler phone he has. And I have my old man phone. But anyway, you might laugh at versions of technology, but the angels are laughing at what we think technology is, so, you know. But every, every complex society uses technology, and in the end, it is the fact that we have bigger and bigger problems that we solve with more and more expensive technology. Technology is the solution until it's the problem. And we are at the phase where technology, which is requiring more and more of our resources to solve our bigger and bigger problems, is no longer part of the solution, it's part of the problem. So I did all that. Oh, okay, well, the, Tainter. There's this guy named Tainter, Joseph Tainter. He's written, he wrote the book back in the, uh, the late 80s, I think, early 90s. Uh, the Collapse of Complex Societies. Fantastic. And here's what he says. The root cause of the collapse of complex societies is a consistent overinvestment into complexity in an environment of declining marginal returns. Got that? The whole book's like that. I've read the book, or I, I, I might have fallen asleep once. Um, twice, maybe. It's a fantastic book, but it, was also, it also sprang from his, his uh, doctorate thesis, and it's, oh, it's, it's tough going. But basically, the, the, the cause of collapse is more and more investment into really expensive technology when you get a lower and lower bang for your buck on that. And yet you're forced to keep your society going, you're forced to keep investing in these, these schemes that will solve the bigger and bigger problems and the world is throwing bigger and bigger problems at us every day. What will trigger conflict to stave off collapse? Well, choose your poison. It's all around us. I mean, you've got uh, an abundance of choices if you've been listening to this seminar. So, yeah, I covered that. In this complex society, we are also running a Ponzi scheme. 
the nations at the top of the pyramid, and you know, we just boy our advanced societies, North America, you know, Europe, and we're so well off, we've got our technology and our universities, and the rest of the world wants to come here. What we don't really recognize is that for the nations at the top of the pyramid to continue in their abundance, we've got to have the nations at the bottom of the pyramid grinding away. We need their intellectual capital, the really smart people that we invite here. We need their resources. We need their cheap labor. We need all of that. For the top of the pyramid to go, the bottom of the pyramid has to be there. When we don't have that bottom of pyramid, the risk of collapse to complex society, the risk of collapse to countries that are at the top of the economic pyramid is increased dramatically. When nations reverse their development, let's, let's think about this for a minute. Egypt, Libya, most of Central Africa and Northern Africa, uh, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, others, Haiti, oh my goodness, what a basket case. When nations reverse their development from first, you know, they're not in fifth, okay, but when they go from first to reverse, then the bottom of the pyramid is crumbling. Madagascar, wow, Mali. And there's a long list of nations that have gone from low gear to reverse in the last three years. And the, this, if we didn't have any other problems, if we just were looking at this one thing, this global Ponzi scheme, this is a tremendous concern. And this is the world you live in. This is the world that supports our very relatively speaking, opulent lifestyle here in North America. And I guess I already covered this, sorry. Some of these slides, I'm used to them being in different order. I, I, I don't know what I did, but again, we don't have a solution. There's always an engineer in the audience or someone with an engineering kind of mind who's saying, wait, but, but, but we could turn uh, Arizona into a, a greenhouse and we could do desalination right at the coast, and we could grow cucumbers and tomatoes all over. Everybody could live on cucumbers and tomatoes, and, and we could, you know, solar cells are doing real well. I know we can't turn those into chemicals like we do fuels, but we must be able to, oh, oh, biofuels. Well, I spent 10 years in biofuels, and uh, uh, it didn't, it hasn't worked for anyone yet, but if we could turn plants into biofuels and we stopped using oil, Within three years, we would have used every tree and shrub and blade of grass on the earth. Boom. We would have used every resource to turn into fuel. There are no solutions that I'm aware of, but for those of you who are thinking about, have that engineering mindset or thinking about problems, let me challenge you with this. If sin is the problem, what is your solution how do you reverse the effects of sin? If you want to find a solution that's outside of Christ, how do you reverse the effects of sin? Because that's the problem. So we've got our physical earth in accelerating decline and our society riding right on top of it like a toboggan. This is current reality. And for the rest of the world, 
They're going to be thinking about basements full of food. They're going to be thinking about how big a gun they need. They're going to be thinking about moving away from population centers. They're going to be thinking about uh, alliances and, and, you know, what, what can I do and how can I survive? The Christian mind, the question should be, how can I grow closer to Christ? Because he is our refuge. Nothing else in the storm that's here, not coming, that's here, hasn't hit you yet, but it's here. Um, how can we grow closer to Christ, and how can we work diligently, feverishly even, in the short amount of time that's left? A lot of people can hear a presentation like this, and, and it, you know, and it'll, it, it might, uh, might affect them a little, or it might leave them with questions. I never really know for the majority of the audience what goes on in their mind. But one thing that keeps us from responding to looking at a world full of disaster and doing anything besides, hmm, is normalcy bias. Now, normalcy bias is a psychological state where we see something coming, and, and you know, just in this one slice of the pie presentation that you're seeing here, we talked about phosphate talked about our, our financial world, we've talked about um, our complex society, we've talked about impending large-scale conflict. All of these are real, but because we've never seen them before, our normal psychological state says we won't see them. Hasn't happened yet, it's not going to happen. Normalcy bias. We have a bias for normality. What happens now will be what continues happening. But the pattern is denial accompanied by a total lack of preparation followed by panic and anger. For those of you who are aware of what's going on, this is the state of mind of the rest of the world. Now, at what point in this pattern will you witness to people? Denial, total lack of preparation, or while they're panicked and angry? That, okay. I would say, here's my argument, here's my counter-argument. To have a seed sprout here, you've got to plant it here. You will labor for Christ with no return. You will work without anyone patting you on the shoulder and saying, attaboy. You will witness without people coming to you. You will... You will be unfulfilled, you will be unrecognized, you will be unmotivated until the latter rain is poured out and you harvest, Christ harvests. And you have to accept that this is how it works. And you have to keep going. All of these things are going on in the world, and even though we deny it, uh, even though we've got our norm normalcy bias going, if you look at the accumulated events, you see that they're completely unsustainable, and we're very near the initial stages of collapse. Will we go into complete disarray on a global basis? No, no, we won't. As it was in the days of Mo Noah, there's going to be a lot of partying going on. We will have an economy. We will function. You know, the U.S. may not be, uh, um, may be economically challenged by China. I, I laugh when people say China's getting bigger. It must mean Christ is coming. Uh, 
Uh, those aren't the dots I connect. But, but no, we won't see complete, complete collapse. Times will get harder, but the wine will flow, and they'll be uh, marrying and giving in marriage. Am I getting close? Have I been droning on forever? Am I getting close to the end? To the, um, what time does this get out? Someone remind me. 9.45, it is 9.48. Ah. Okay, the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But there's a promise here. My salvation will be forever. My righteousness will not be abolished. I'll stop there. You can hear the entire seminar on Audioverse. May God bless you as you go forward in your ministries. Thank you. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.